Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Self Love Club, a place where boss babes share their stories to empower women. Welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. I'm your host, Belle Crawford. Join me for a podcast series where we'll hear the stories of girl boss women. We're doing super cool things with their lives. We'll find out how they've done what they have, their self-love and self-care practices, and they'll share their tips to empower you to live your best life. Steph Prem is a former Winter Olympian whose career ended after a heartbreaking accident. Steph's parents weren't stoked when she dropped out of uni to focus on training seriously, which paid off as she became a champion in multiple countries and the first Aussie female to compete in snowboarding at the Olympics. Steph is now a businesswoman with a passion for health and well-being and has her own Pilates studios in Melbourne. We're so lucky to have Steph share her inspiring story on the Self Love Club podcast. Steffi, welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. Thank you so much for your time today. You are so welcome. I'm so glad that we can finally do this. I have wanted to speak to you for like a year now, so it's so exciting to have you on. We're finally in the same country at the yes. same time. It Making all, it happen. It all worked out. Hey, so tell us about yourself, what you're all about and what you do. Um, such a loaded question. Because <laughs> I, I, I do a lot, but essentially... Um, you know, officially Steph, um, f- former Winter Olympian, but these days I focus on on health and wellness. I'm very passionate about helping people live a healthy and happy life. Um, and I have Studio PP, which is my baby, um, which focuses on not just exercising the body, but exercising mind and spirit. And um, yeah, I've built my, my business back here in Melbourne and um, we're, we're, we're expanding as we speak. And yeah, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm in the business of health and happiness. Yeah. So take us back. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Oh, I'm, I'm a Melbourne girl, so um, born and bred and grew up in a super active, sporty family. So um, it's no wonder that I went on to do sports, I guess. Um, not that I even knew that as a kid, mm. but um danced for 15 years as a kid uh, my parents were super into you know after school sports and um helping us out with all of that kind of stuff and um we used to travel and you know bike ride and go to the mountains and go to the snow and get away to the beach on the weekends so I guess I'm, I'm lucky that I grew up in a really active and I guess healthy and, mm. and happy family um, and then I, um, I finished school and went to uni for about a year or so. And then, um, what did you study? I was studying, you'll, you'll love this, musical theatre, <laughs> drama, uh, essentially a, a Bachelor of Arts degree. Yeah. Um, but I was between the Victorian College of the Arts and Deakin University doing a, a Bachelor of Arts mm-hmm. and, um, uh, and, and musical theatre of all things. Um, so it's funny, and I guess the dance and theatre background kind of circled mm. 360 uh, a little bit um, coming back into the sort of movement space these days. 
Um, but it was a little bit removed when I decided to retire from uni and then go and pursue my winter sports career. So how did that all come about? Did you know when you're at school, what did you think you would end up doing career-wise? Did you have any idea? No, definitely not. I mean, I think for me, um, uh, performing arts was always a passion for me, um, but so was sport. Mm. And they were just things that I loved doing. So, I, you know, I was sports captain, but then I would also be part of the theatre club and I was just always that way inclined. Mm. Um, so if anything, I always thought I would have gone more in the performance angle and I guess I do a lot of speaking work and motivational speaking and that kind of stuff these days. But, um, but back then I, I, I probably didn't have the self-belief that I could be a professional athlete. When I took up snow sports, it was something that I did with my family. It was something that I loved doing with um, my friends and like snowboarding with my dad. It was not something that I thought, you know, and some people take this the wrong way, but I didn't grow up thinking I want to be an Olympian. Mm-hmm. When I grow up, that was never my, my goal. It was never my go-to. Um, my sport was never an Olympic sport either. So I, I was just, you know, action sports was my thing. It yeah. was my outlet for my white line fever and uh, it was just something I liked doing. So it mm-hmm. took me to go to university to realise I did not want to be at university mm-hmm. and that the, the academic lifestyle wasn't suiting me and that I missed uh, the freedom of sport and I missed competition mm-hmm. greatly. Um, and that's kind of what, uh, I guess, gave me the kick to give give professional sports a go. So how did that transition happen? How did you get from when you're at uni and you're like, okay, this is not for me, how did you then move from that to then actually taking your sport profession, like a professional route? I was always one of the youngest kids that came out of, um, I used to train at Mount Buller, which is just about three hours out of Melbourne, and I was always one of the younger kids in our group and we, I was part of a race club and part of a, a team. Um, and I guess when I went to university, I, I had a lot of my older friends sort of sort of ringing me and dialing back in and um, sort of seeing where I was at and what I was doing. And they were all traveling overseas and still doing, you know, amateur competitions or junior world competitions and a few things. And I just felt uh, that I'd gone to university thinking that's what I should do, mm. um, but not realizing until I got there that maybe there was a whole other world out there that I should be pursuing. So much to the, the delight of my parents, <laughs> I unenrolled myself in university but didn't tell them <laughs> and, and and started using my days off and the weekends to go back up to the snow and pursue sport again. Mm-hmm. And um, they worked it out pretty quickly, what I'd done. Um, and they were really great and they were quite supportive and they sort of said, you know, take a year, see what you can achieve, do what you do. Uh, we support you and and but obviously I think in the back of their minds they still laugh now they're like no we just thought you'd you know turn yeah. around in six months time and back to come, on, again. come on back yeah that never happened yeah um and you know I, I guess I I put my head down butt up I really loved competing I love working hard I loved sport and what mm-hmm. it gave me I loved the camaraderie I love the, the friendships and the travel so I got quite addicted to that lifestyle, um, even though it was a lot of hard work. Mm. I, I loved everything that came with it. And I I missed, so it must have been around about 2004, I qualified, semi-qualified uh, for the Olympics, uh, the 2006 Olympics, um, but I missed qualifying. So I made like pre-selection mm-hmm. and then the year before the Games, I didn't make it. So I'd taken that year off and then I decided to do the next year because I semi-qualified. And that essentially was what gave me the kick up the ass 
to make the choice to actually be a professional athlete. And I guess realizing that you actually were good enough to like qualify. Yeah. You're like, okay, maybe I, I mean, that's, that's a quite a quick turnaround. I mean, you were like obviously probably putting a lot of effort in and training and things, but to be actually qualify at an Olympic level, that must have proven to you that, hey, maybe I actually can do this. And it's a completely different mindset mm. as well. And I was only 19, maybe 19, yeah. 20. Um, you know, fresh out of school, a year and a half into uni, two years in, and I really didn't, like you said, I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. Um, I didn't really have a career trajectory to be a professional athlete. But the minute I made that switch after 2006 and was like, I'm going to qualify for the 2010 Olympics, mm-hmm. everything changed for me because I started telling people that's what I was going to do. And that was a big part of stepping into it and, and making that choice to be an athlete because I started telling people that's what I was. Mm. And prior to that, I'd, I'd kind of only dipped my toes in the water. Yeah. And I didn't know either. I hadn't committed. I was, was I a student? Was I trying to be an athlete? Well, I didn't know. So once I made that decision and I dedicated the next four years of my life to qualifying and making it to the next Olympics, everything changed for me. Mm. Yeah. So when, when you qualified for the next Olympics, <laughs> tell us, like, talk us through that and how that all sort of played out. Well, I think it, a fun thing that a lot of people didn't don't know, and I didn't know this back then, was that you actually don't find out you qualify for the Olympics until literally two, three weeks before the Olympics. Are you kidding? About mu- probably a month. you like no time to prepare. No, well, you're preparing anyway because yeah. your life is dedicated to it. But mentally, of course not. It doesn't give you a lot of time. As an athlete, it's obviously um, – it's calculated to a point. So you know your rankings, mm-hmm. you know your points, you know what you have to do to qualify, but there's still a very, very tight selection criteria down to the wire. And those, you essentially the year before the Olympics matters the most. And if you injure yourself or you miss a race or you skip something in that year before, it affects everything. It mm-hmm. hinders your ranking, your qualification, everything else. So I had had an injury coming into the Games and I had to work really, really hard in that pre-Olympic season. And, of course, like your nerves and your headspace that year before the, Olymp- the year before an Olympic Games is tricky. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a challenge and nothing can prepare you for that. So as much as you're in the zone, um, it comes down to that selection criteria and your ranking and obviously your country choosing to select you. Uh, and the sport that I was in, which is border cross, um, only the top 22 athletes in the world are selected to go to the Olympics. So you have to be ranked top 22 in the world. If you're top 22 in the world in most sports, it's a, it's it's a really big, good. It's a big deal. Like if yeah. I was top 22 in the world at tennis, my life would be very different. Yeah. Unfortunately, I was born without hand-eye coordination, so that was <laughs> never an option for me. But, um, you know, just I just happened to be really good and passionate about snowboarding. Mm. And my event became an Olympic uh, an event, a, a discipline at the Olympics um, that four years prior. So yeah. I was the first female um, to be selected to compete um, for Australia at the Olympics. So I was the only female selected to compete uh, for border cross. We, of course, had other teams um, for the 2010 Olympics. So What, what Olympics was that one? Like, uh, Vancouver. Vancouver. Right. Yeah, which is great. great. Such place. a good city. Yeah. And I felt so lucky to compete in Vancouver because there's such a huge mm-hmm. um, community of Aussies um, that live there. So um, I'm an, I compete in an individual sport. So for me, I did. Um, I didn't, I've never been in a team sport. So to go to an Olympic Games is, is all about um, being part of a team. Mm-hmm. And um, you get people that follow and jump onto a sport. Little do they know about anything about your sport, but they're so passionate and you get these mad um, 
you know, fans or people that are just sports nuts and, and in love with athletes and sport and they come out, you know, mm. around Olympic time. And it, it, for an athlete, it's so special. It just makes everything um, so much more heightened and so you feel so much more supported yeah. as, a, as, a, as an athlete coming into a Games when all these people come out of the woodworks and, you know, um, make you signs and <laughs> make you banners and, you know, stand outside the Olympic Village with wearing green and gold and cheer yeah. on, you know, walking out to your training every day. It, was, I guess it makes the last four years of, you know, last <laughs> really worth it. You know, you're like, I've been training on my own quietly, no one, you know, and then all of a sudden there's people that are showing up for you. It's so true. Yeah. It is. It's, um, it's, it's something when people ask me, you know, what stands out, and this is, I'm old and retired these days, you know, it's so long ago, but when people ask me those moments that you remember mm. from the games, because I think you're very lucky in life if you compute, compete at numerous Olympics. You know, I was lucky enough to get one and that was hard enough. Um, but there's back then, um, you know, you get um, letterboxes, like pigeonholes, and it's obviously very different. We weren't even allowed social media when I went to the Olympics. It was banned in the Olympic Village because they really? saw it as a distraction <gasps> to the athletes. Like things have changed so much yeah. in the scope of what's acceptable for athletes these days. You need social media oh, yeah. to promote yourself as an athlete. But we get these pigeonholes and you're not allowed to check them until after the games because apparently like some athletes get um, terrible letters sent oh, to them. Oh, true, yeah. You know, um, horrendous, like death threats and horrible yeah. things. So I never knew about any of this kind of thing. And I obviously wasn't um, a high-profile athlete that had those issues. Yeah. But and So I didn't even think to check my pigeonhole because I wasn't expecting any yeah, mail. No one's going to see me letters, <laughs> yeah. Don't expect mail at the Olympic Village. Um, you know, and my my parents and my sister and my best friend came to the games and that was all I was You're expecting. You're like, that's all I'm, you know, my parents have always been here since I was a kid. So I like, didn't yeah, expect yeah. them to write your letter. Yeah. But um, a lot of schools... Um, back home in Melbourne or back in Australia were asked to do Olympic projects and they get chosen, you know, they get to pick an athlete and then they get to choose to do that athlete or or write that athlete questions and letters and and things. So I got all these school projects. so nice. And it was, like, I just remember sitting, showing my parents, being like, this is just, Mm. like, heartwarming. And to them, they're like a hero, you know, like someone from their city competing in the Olympics, like, that's a big deal to a kid back home and in Melbourne, you know, at school. I remember when Olympians came to my school yeah, as a kid. It same. was the best ever. Wow, they're like the biggest legends in the world. Uh, you know? Yeah, so it felt it felt really quite bizarre to be mm. on the other side of that, but I've still got those letters. It's so, so nice. So take us through the experience of competing in the 2010 Winter Olympics. What was that like for you? Um, I think the first word that comes to mind is overwhelm. Because mm. uh, I think um, I had this incredible mentor coming into the games, um, Danny Roach. She was like a two-time Olympian hockey player actually herself. But in terms of like mindset and preparation and getting ready for the games, she was incredible for me to prepare me for. And she was like, I can help you with everything. Like I can prepare you in so many facets um, stepping into these games, but I can't prepare you for race day. Like because nothing compares to that moment of standing in the games Mm. at the Olympic Games. And she was so right because up until that moment I felt pretty cool, calm and collected. And then like as I went to the toilet for like the eighth time <laughs> before my event, yeah, for a nervous fears, you know, it was good because I actually ran into like another five or ten girls lining up for the bathroom. Mm. And these are girls, I should say women, that I had admired, you know. You know, I was t- top 20 in the world at the time when I went to the Games, but I – you know, I wasn't top five in the world. So there was still these athletes that I admire 
and aspired to and to see them being nervous on the day Mm -hmm. just changes everything for you so I mean you know a highlighting for me is that moment of standing in the gate and and getting ready to pull out and I guess everyone says you obviously are representing your country but it's like I said it's an individual sport so Mm -hmm. for me it's crazy because you pull get yourself in the gate nothing can prepare you for that moment because it comes down to you in that moment Mm. and no one else. Yeah. Um, And that's a very, very overwhelming, (laughs) you know, all sensory overload Mm. comes into play at that moment. Um, And and I'll never forget uh, how that feels in terms of nerves. It's just Mm. not like like a regular nerve. It's not like a butterfly. Mm. It's like a gut-wrenching, overwhelmed, years and years of your life Mm. comes down to that one run because – I, you know, I was a national champion and um, numerous times, not just in Australia, but in, in many countries. And I won many titles and I had a very successful career, but no one cares. Mm. <laughs> and not that it's about anyone else. You, as an athlete, you don't do it for that. But the only race that people know about and watch is the Olympics. Mm. And it's hard not to take that into an account when you, when you turn up to something like that. It kind of comes down to that moment, doesn't it? All yeah. the last years of all the success, all the things you've done, all the training, that one moment and you've got, it's not like you're in a team sport where you can rely on others to, you know, sort of help you out or work with other people. You're literally, it's you and only you that you can depend on that moment. Yeah, and it's a, I've never had the feeling ever again in my life mm-hmm. uh, and I probably never will, um, but it taught me a lot and I, I revert to that moment a lot in my life when mm-hmm. other things come about because I just feel like if I can do that, I can do What did that moment feel like? Was it just a lot of pressure or something? Yeah, it is. It's like because you've worked so hard and and honestly something I always took into racing was like you're only as good as your last race. Mm. You know, you want to treat the Olympics like any other race course, but it's not and that that is the thing and you can't not take that out of your mind on the day because everything does feel different. As much as um, the course feels like a course that you're used to racing on, uh, and the jumps, you know, you're, you're prepared. Like I said, it's a calculated event. So you, mm. you've you've trained those kind of features before and you kind of know what to expect. But I wasn't, uh, you know, we're not used to having tens of thousands of people watch us at an mm. event, not especially not in, in my event in snowboarding. And, um, you know, um, the big screens and the noise and the sound effects on the day and all the other athletes, the energy on the day. Like, you know, I someone who can pick up on on, on energy and it's just such high frequency mm-hmm. on the day because everyone is just so high octane. Yeah. Know? And we actually, the Australian team got moved out of the Olympic village um, before all of our events because the Olympic village is as amazing as it is. And it's, you know, to be able to tell people you stay in an Olympic village is, is unreal, but it is such an overwhelming environment mm-hmm. because everyone is there to try and compete at an Olympic level. So mm-hmm. you can imagine the kind of personalities, oh. you know, and it's everyone's on heat and everyone is in that phase of their life where they're trying to get their best performance mm-hmm. of all time. So it's a very, very high um, octane environment. So And then it's no different when you turn up to your event <laughs> on the day. So, yeah, we, we were lucky. We got moved out of the, the village and put up in these really cool um, little homes just outside of Vancouver. They, like, put little framed pictures of our families and, like, Australian flags and, like, Vegemite in the pantries for us. So they're like, we want you to feel like it's home. (laughs) So, you know, the the whole experience is Mm. is incredible, but it's it's not like any other race you've ever done in your life. I imagine it's, like, the highest peak of athletes in the world, really, isn't it? Totally. And, you know, coming into it for me, I, I, again, people say, 
this is probably very Australian, that they're like, that's not okay because I, they're like, you know, you can't go to the Olympics unless you want to win. I went to the Olympics desperately wanting to get a top 10 result. Mm-hmm. I was top 20 in the world. I'd had a, had a 12th coming into the games. I was so close to that top 10 I could taste it. And for me, that's really where I wanted to sit, mm-hmm. um, you know. And don't get me wrong, had I have <laughs> finished close to the top five, I wouldn't have been upset about it. <laughs> yeah. I would have taken a podium finish. And my event or the border cross event is kind of like the whole Stephen Bradbury moment. There's, you know, four of us racing at the same time. So anything can happen and it's anyone's race on the day. But you kind of need to be in it to win it. Mm. So I really wanted to be in that top ten. So I, I was in 11th after first run. After my first run, I was so close. Um, I put in a very safe run, though. The course was very dangerous. Um, We've had some terrible, and I'm saying this to paint a picture, not make an excuse, but, like, horrendous weather coming into the games. Um, and all the, even the boys were struggling on the course too. So the girls were nervous, to say the least. But um, after my first run, I was in 11th, I, I thought, I'm, I've got this. I feel it. The second run felt so much faster. Uh, felt really good under my feet. And I got about three quarters of the way down the course and I made a little bit of a mistake over one of the features. I came up short on a jump. Long story short, it just set me mm. um, off tilt for the next feature. Uh, I came up short on this jump and um, essentially took a big tumble, bit of a, you know, bit of a, a, a um, cartwheel. And, um, and that was it. I got disqualified, knocked out on my second oh, run, no. uh, winded myself, uh, broke a couple of ribs. <sighs> Got myself down to the bottom of the course. When I say got myself, I was medically assisted to the bottom of the course. And you look back up and they've got those huge screens that obviously have everyone's times and totals. And my first run still counted. Mm -hmm. So I got disqualified my second, but my first run and time still counted. And all I needed to do was be in that top 16 to to get through to the next round. It's like an elimination process. Mm. And I was sitting in 14th. And I was like, I'm still close, I'm still close. And they had um, a few girls to still come down the course. And I just watched myself go from 15, 16, 17. And I missed qualifying for the next round of the Olympics by like 0.07 of a second. Oh, heartbreaking. <laughs> and it, it was heartbreaking mm. and it's taken years. It took years to come to terms with it. Yeah. Um, Did you feel like you failed? You do in that moment. And it's not like you failed the people around you, you failed yourself. Because yeah, it's the worst type of feeling of failure isn't it it is when you've let yourself down mm. when you know you can do better um when you know you didn't get the result but you knocked yet. yourself out like what were you to do you know like, no there was nothing you know what I mean do. like you you knock yourself out <laughs> like and, and that happens these things happen but I, I know you like I think the worst disappointment is disappointment in yourself and it knowing is. that you can do better or wanting to do better and having such high standards which a lot of people can relate to as well totally mm. and it's um you know, I'm, believe it or not, a big A-type person. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, very much struggle with those kinds of moments. Yeah. And I probably hadn't prepared myself enough for the worst outcome. Mm. Um, I, I really thought I was going to sit in that top ten. Um, but, yeah, so that, that moment for me was very hard. I obviously had to do a lot of work on myself after that, uh, years of um, working with a sports psychologist. It really... I mean, there was more to come. I had a horrific accident weeks later that really, really set me off over the edge. But, um, you know, these days I'm very, very proud of where I finished in, you know, I was still top 20 in an an Olympic sport in the world. It's huge. I had an unreal career that was the highlight of my life and still is. Um, 
and I'm, I'm very grateful for the sport and everything it did for me and for my Olympic experience. You know, mm-hmm. at the time, sure, you're, but if I've had worse races as well. It, it's only because of the event that it is. Exactly. And you have to continually justify it to other people when you get back on home soil, whereas you can have a bad race overseas normally. You can have a win normally. No one no knows one the difference. Cares. They don't know whether to celebrate it or know mm. about it or care, but people know about the Olympics. So mm. that for me was a lot harder yeah. to explain to people because that's all they know and that's all they see. Um, so that took a lot of work. Yeah, I bet. So what was it like coming home in your life post-Olympics? You say it was hard to sort of come to terms with. How were you, like, mentally and when you came home? What, what was going on for you? I was, um, I, was, I was broken, a very broken version of myself, physically, mentally, emotionally. I think um, so about six weeks after the Olympics we had World Cup finals. I was still a bit belted up physically from the accident mm-hmm. at the Olympics. And um, a big lesson I've learned in life, you know, hindsight's a beautiful thing, mm-hmm. but um, is that you have to do things in life for yourself, otherwise you don't get the best outcome. And I went to World Cup finals wanting to prove that I was a great athlete, wanting to prove that I was a good snowboarder, uh, instead of probably throwing in the towel when I should have because I was quite burnt out and injured mm. after a full four-year Olympic cycle. And um, I, long story short, had a horrific accident at World Cup finals um, and essentially broke my back. So I, I fractured my spine um, in multiple places, broke five ribs, tore my hamstring, dislocated my hip, oh did my severe gosh. spinal whiplash to myself, and essentially the entire left hand side of my body um, w- was taken out in this in this accident. Um, and, and you know, uh, it, it obviously was the end of my professional sporting career. And coming uh, off World Cup finals that way, and and had a, having also have come off the Olympic result that I wasn't happy with, it was a, it was a very challenging. Um, season for me. Wow. So I was I couldn't even fly straight home because I wasn't cleared to fly. So I because I was covered in hematomas, mm. um, a bone bruising. Essentially, they won't let you fly, especially not internationally because mm. um, of blood clotting. So I wasn't cleared to fly for about six or seven weeks. So I was um, stuck in Europe um, for that time, essentially on, on bed rest, mm. not being able to do anything, which I'm not good at the best of times. Yeah. And I couldn't get home to the doctors and the people I knew and trusted yeah, and wanted like, to see to help me out. Yeah. So I came home to answer your question, not in my best state. Um, denial was a really good place for me to live for a while. Cause I don't think I wanted to believe how bad the accident was, how bad the outcome was. Yeah. Um, but it was having to answer to people and, justify everything which was really challenging for me when I was already in a very rundown state and physically very very impaired (laughs) and unable to do a lot so that was um it was a big big learning curve for me um and and long story short it was five years of rehab off that off the back of that accident Mm. so it was literally that was just the the stepping stone I actually think I got worse after that because I came home and actually actually had to do the work and the rehab and, mm. and realise that I wasn't going to bounce back onto my snowboard. Yeah. I also wasn't going to bounce back into my career, which was all I knew and loved at that point. Um, Did you place a lot of your identity in that career? Massively, mm. massively. And it's very common for athletes to do so. And I honestly never thought I did. Until I did. It's not <laughs> until you don't have it so much anymore or you're not able to that you realise that, hey, Wow, like it's like any. I think anyone when they're like in a high-performing career and then you don't have that anymore, you're sort of like, 
um, but oh no, what? Who am I? What's going on? What's what? my life? What is my purpose? You know, yeah, like exactly. Yeah. When you don't have something that forces you to get out of bed every day mm. and do what you do, and because I think because it wasn't my choice that make it make yeah. it hard. If I had chosen to retire, I'm like, okay, cool, I'm done now. But it, yeah, it was out of your hands, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was completely out of my hands, and I couldn't even get up and exercise or do yeah. anything. I was so injured, so I had no reason mm. to get up. So. The rehab helped because it did give me a reason to turn up. I thought I was going to be back on my snowboard a lot quicker than I ever was. And for me, that was a good phase to kind of live in for a while Mm. because it it pushed me through day to day thinking I was working towards a bigger goal of being well again and jumping back on my snowboard and getting back into my sporting career. I had no idea it would be as long and arduous as it was. Mm. What does that do to you mentally when you're sort of, thrown in a situation where you're such an active person and you're not even able to get out and properly exercise. What does that do for your mental health? I mean, I'm someone, these days I exercise for mainly because it mentally makes me Mm. feel fit. Um, I I run a gym not based on, you know, um, short-term aesthetic um, gains, but more about long-term performance and, Mm. you know, how athletes see conditioning and um, fitness and sport it's all about mentally and physically feeling your best um so it, it really shook me to the core I wasn't someone I mean I was I was born with a, a very rare and um excessive case of enthusiasm so like for <laughs> me uh, it wasn't something I'd had to deal with before I hadn't found myself in such a negative mm. or challenged space before so it was very new territory for me and like anything in life like change is not easy <laughs> and I was sitting in a very unfamiliar um, mental territory for me in a very, and it was negative because mm. I, I couldn't exercise to make myself feel better. Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't um, jump out of bed and go do what I loved doing, which was snowboarding mm. and competing and sport uh, and, and, and training. Um, so with that removed, it, I had to really uh, reframe what was important to me and what I sort of wanted the next sort of uh, three to five months to three to five years to look like because it, 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 I had to come to terms with the fact that it, it wasn't going to be what I thought it had been. How did you do that and how did you drag yourself out of that place and that mindset and rebuild your life, I guess? Uh, in all honesty, I had an incredible um, sports psychologist, which I, and ironically I've never used psychology in the lead-up to the games. I think luckily I was very strong-willed and strong-minded mm. uh, and I was in an action sport, so I think to a point it is different. Like, you know, you have to turn up with a big set of balls and <laughs> give your best on the day. Yeah. And that was something I, I was very good under pressure. So I, I hadn't explored sports psychology a great deal, um, so it wasn't something that I warmed to easily, but it, it changed my life for me. Mm-hmm. So it was all about um, reframing everything and kind of essentially using all the tools that I knew from sport like setting short-term goals and long-term goals and, um, you know, um, working in, uh, you know, in chunks, not trying in bite-sized pieces, not looking to the long-term goal all the mm-hmm. time. It's like as an athlete, you can't just look at the Olympics. Yeah. You, know, you have to win numerous, numerous, numerous competitions um, to get to that point. Mm-hmm. So I had to kind of reset everything and reframe everything and um, I'm a better big picture person. So, you know, small picture stuff was hard for me. Mm. I found that really challenging. So, you know, it came everything from who I was surrounding myself with to what inspired me to what I was passionate about outside of sport to um, 
building my own business. So, my, um, you know, my sports psychologist is a huge influence in me mm. build, building my business because she was like, we have to put this energy somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> like you're still so full of like I was mentally and physically quite um, uh, uh, in a bad place, mm. but I was still had a big zest. Yeah, you had the drive to do and, and drive new. for life. So, so when in that process, like in terms of when did you start your business? Did that sort of happen not long after that? It did, yeah. Studio PP grew out, or premium performance as it was originally called. That's what the PP stands for, um, being the most premium version of yourself, performing at, at your best, um, is was some kind of built out of the fact that I thought I'd be going back to sport. Mm. Um, so I thought it was a great job in the interim to be helping people with their health and fitness because I just always assumed I would go back to sport and it seemed like a great thing to do. Um, so, and the study was a great way for me to fill time and fill those chunks with things that inspired me and, uh, you know, learning and education and all of that stuff was really good for me at the time and kept me focused on something else. Um, and I was having to do Pilates as part of my rehab for my injury. Um, I was a dancer for 15 years, so I, Pilates was something that I was familiar with mm. and um, a lot of that um, kind of corrective exercise and functional stuff kind of did full circle for me because I had, had done high-level dance for a long time. So I kind of fell back in love with movement in that phase and um, PP started literally out of the passion to do something else and have a reason to get out of bed in the morning. So I put an ad on Facebook and my mum was amazing and she's like, well, I know other mums and, you know, we need help and I can find you some ladies and, you know, I'll put a group together. Oh, so please. It's so yeah. nice. Mum put a group together. How good are mums? So good. What would we do without I know. So supportive. And so she got a group of girls together and then I got another group of girls together off Facebook and that started with two groups and within a very short couple of months I had 25 groups and we were just groups. Training, wow. training in the park, you know, you know, I didn't even have a fitness permit back then. I was just exploring this idea mm. of doing women's motivational fitness camps and classes and I fell in love with it. And over those next few years with some more study and some more women's groups, I realised that there was a missing market in mm. the health and fitness space, especially for women, um, but more so just that whole burn and churn thing just didn't apply to me anymore. Uh, that's what I knew as an athlete, but it didn't serve me. Mm. And it certainly didn't serve me as an injured person. It certainly didn't serve me as someone who had left sport that wasn't trying to go to an Olympics anymore. Um, so I found this whole new side of life being the clinical side and the Pilates side and the nurturing side of health and wellbeing that I loved and felt that I could really resonate with people. And that it built out of that. And from there we got this um, small, tiny studio a few years later and it was around about 2014 when I got um, my first space and it was obviously a four-year cycle. So I was meant, I not meant, but I really wanted to go to the 2014 Olympics and I was way, way off qualifying. So mm. in about 2013 it became clear that I wasn't going to be able to go around again and um, Channel 10 gave me a job as a commentator for the Olympics and that was a real turning point for me um, I got to, A, come and take half of my old friends and teammates and peers that I had raced with my entire life, so it felt like second nature. But I also saw so many of my teammates and friends um, and idols 
hurt themselves at the games. You know, I was commentating these horrendous crashes and accidents mm. that I had been through myself. And it, it was this weird, bizarre closure. It gave me, I guess, permission or something to then open my business and then go for it. Um, so the minute I removed sport from the equation, it was easier for me. Mm. Thanks to Air New Zealand's Gravisite for making this episode of the Self Love Club podcast possible. Sometimes we're thrown a curveball or we're thrown a reroute, and at the time you don't see it mm. and you don't you're in it. You're just in it and you're trying to cope with it yeah. and deal with it and take it day by day. And you so can't see the woods through the trees, mm. you know. And then you come out the other side and you realise that was where you were meant to be all along. Yeah. So that's sort of how. PP started properly for me, even though I'd been doing it for those years in between. But I, once I opened that that little studio, that studio gave me life. Like yeah. it was this decrepit little foul, rundown space above a pub on Chapel oh, Street. It's the best way, though. Yeah, and it just it built this beautiful community of um, women um, that wanted something different and fresh. And back then, Pilates, you know, my friends thought I was insane. Well, it's still feeling new back then. Back then. Yeah. Yeah. This is eight, nine years ago. Yeah. Now it's like all the rage. Like everyone's like, Oh my God, you're going to do reformer Pilates. Yeah. Like you're so onto it. I, yeah. you know, I wasn't onto it. I wasn't you doing reformer early, Pilates because it was cool. You were an early adapter, you know, early adapter. And I, it had just had such a, a profound, um, result on my own body, mm. um, and mind that mm. I just had to share it with others. Yeah. And, um, and like most people that have discovered Pilates through injury or um, through, uh, you know, some kind of awakening in their body, it just felt so normal, right, for me to do yeah. that. Um, and then, you know, we got kicked out of that little tiny space because um, we just had a pop-up lease because I was just seeing, dipping my toes in. Well, you've got to at the beginning because you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. I had no backing and yeah. no savings and no money. I was just like, I will find the rent and yeah. I will get work the clients and yeah. we'll work it out when we get there. So what happened next? Where did you go? It was your next studio? Uh, and, and so that was like the PP or the premium performance pop-up. And then from there, about a year into that, so about 2015, I opened studio pp which is um our still our headquarters today five years later and um you know it's not just me anymore there's a team of 16 of us here now um we don't just do pilates anymore you know we do um hip classes and boxing classes and yoga classes and um um, spin classes reformer pilates and corporate health and well-being and we have a full-time physio and a podiatrist and a nutritionist and wow I guess I, I just I wanted to build a multifaceted space, kind of like what I had access to as an athlete, mm. but for the everyday person. Yeah. Where people could walk into a space and feel like they had options. It wasn't just a yoga studio, it wasn't just about um, doing a hit class, it wasn't um, specialised in one thing. It was a, a home or a, a a house that contained a little bit of everything and people had the option to get their best out of their bodies mm. and have, a, have have access to variety on one membership um, and then also have access to these incredible allied health, you know, practitioners um, and facilitators that could complement all the movement that we were doing. So mm-hmm. what did that mean, taking that leap of faith from going from your pop-ups, you know, studio to then, you know, fully going, okay, cool, and then getting a, like a, you know, a proper long-term sort of situation. What did that mean for you and for your business? <laughs> situation is the best word because <laughs> I think running a small business 
is just a giant situation mm. that you can't prepare for. Mm. Um, I certainly wasn't. And if I knew what I knew now, five to eight years down the track, I, I never would have dove in as wholeheartedly as I did. And I don't say that to be negative. I say that to be honest. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't listening to podcasts back then and I didn't have access to the knowledge, you know, and the insight that we do have now as mm. well. I, you know, I'm lucky to have some incredible mentors and people I've worked with and, clients that have educated me about business but um you know the naivety is a great thing in business as well because it makes you dive in and not question yourself yeah so I, I don't think I ever would have got this space you know it's great you're in this space with me today yeah, it's beautiful um off the ground knowing what I know now mm. But then again, I, I hear that a lot with people who start something epic. They just said the naivety was in a way to their advantage totally because they weren't. Be, they I didn't think. really. They didn't really weigh up what they're actually getting themselves in for. No, you know, like otherwise you wouldn't do it because you'd be like, oh no, that's way too scary. Or, that's way too much risk. You know, I think with any entrepreneurial business person has to come a bit of naivety in a way. It's like the fearlessness in a way. I think it's more fearlessness because you don't really know what you're getting yourself in for. It's so true. And you mean you say fearlessness. Yeah. I come from action sports. You know, I come from extreme sport. Mm. Uh, and it's no different. You don't go into an event or go into a sport going, oh, you know, I hope I don't break a bone today. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't, I hope I don't really hurt myself or injure myself or others in this race today. You don't have that mindset. You can't, you can't turn up with being in that kind of headspace, but you know, it's part of the territory. So I think business is similar. Like when I opened my business, people asked me questions that I had not asked myself. And that was a very scary thing because people were like, but what if it doesn't work? And have you got the cash flow? And have you thought about this? And have you set up these things? And if you put these things in place? And these were all things that I didn't know or understand. Mm. Um, but it was good that I didn't. And I learnt and you learn as you go. And I think like any small business owner or entrepreneur at some point, um, you there's a drive that is unwavered. And without it, you're fucked. Mm. Um, but it pushes you through the harder days and it makes you learn and step up um, on, on, the, um, on, on the really challenging days. Um, and then everything else you, you work out as you go. And I think some things, like most things in life, you can't learn until you, you're in it doing it mm. for yourself. Yeah. Um, it's, it's no different to a health and fitness journey or having a baby or starting a business or take, you know, buying a house or getting a mortgage for the first time. Like it's all these things that in life, like unless you do them and you dive in and you try it out for yourself, how are you ever going to know? Mm. Um, so I, you know, I'm grateful that I've come this far in, in small business and that we're still. And now you're like expanding across multiple spaces which you know like from going from one you know like space and you do pop-ups as well and around the place and then now going right into the city of melbourne i mean you're fairly central already we it's are a huge achievement you know did you ever think that was possible absolutely not and i never i i i haven't put um i, I mean you obviously set yourself like certain kpis and uh, you know, you, you run a PL and you, you just turn up most days hoping for the best. And I'm in the service industry, you know, so you look after people and you, you service your clients and your business and your team and your culture the best you can and you hope for the best. Mm. Um, and, and I don't think you can ever take your foot off the pedal. Um, I think you have to keep pushing, um, just like I did in sport. That's my only reference point.
What are some of your go-to self-care practices? I'm sure that like, you know, Pilates and exercise and some of the things you've spoken about, but what are some things that you do on a regular basis to keep yourself well and happy? Um, And, you know, I'm the first to put my hand up and say that I struggle like anyone else to find that balance. Um, I think my life's work is dedicated to it, but I'm, I, but I am an advocate of, of self-care, not being selfish but being, um, I, I guess, uh, a necessity <laughs> to operate and flourish. Mm. Um, and, and it's funny because I, I work with a lot of clients that say to me, you know, how do you find balance and I don't have time and it just feels like something else on my to-do list and my checklist and, like, like I get that mm. more than anyone. Uh, and I work in the service industry, so I'm with people all day long. So you have to find that time and you have to make that time to switch off. Um you know, and for me, that looks like uh, acupuncture is is my go-to, my absolute non-negotiable. It's a big thing for me. It helps with my back pain. It helps with my hormonal system. It helps with my parasympathetic nervous system. It helps. It's like a meditation for mm. me. It switches me off, keeps me off my phone for an hour. It keeps me out of my head for an hour. Uh, I love it. It's a big, big thing for me. Obviously, Pilates in terms of movement is my favorite modality. Um, breath work is key for me. Um, I don't know if it comes from that performance background because I used to do, you know, a lot of drama and a lot of dance and singing and breath work was always part of it. That's become a big part of my work in Pilates um, and, um, and, and stress mm. <laughs> um, management, essentially. It's an incredible, incredible tool for stress management. Um, and uh, sleep. <laughs> oh, I know. I think rest is one of, I've realized it's one of probably the most important form of self-care. You know, I think we're all obsessed with, well, not even obsessed, but we're all just so busy and go, go, go. Oh, but you need, your body actually needs you to get a certain amount of rest and sleep so that you can function and do all these things. It is. And I think like, rather than just like, yeah, I mean, yes, we need to hustle and get things done, but we also need to focus on, it's okay to rest and like, don't think you have to be busy the whole time. Like, it's not a glorified thing like rest there's nothing lazy about just chilling out and having an early night you know and restoring yeah like it's so important I feel like we're having to retrain ourselves to actually rest which is like one of the most simple things ever we are having to retrain ourselves Mm. I mean busy is an addiction uh like any substance like most other things we're addicted to in life um we've become addicted to the doing um addicted to stress uh, and stress, we get so addicted to the response of stress that when we don't have it, we go looking for it. Mm. So we stay busy to refine that feeling of stress and pressure and being on so that we feel satisfied that we're pushing ourselves mm. and doing enough and getting the most out of every situation. Yeah. And, and it's a vicious, vicious cycle. Mm. Um, so I learned that the hard way. I've had, um, you know, I had a burnout in sport and then I opened my business and two years into my business, had a massive, massive burnout in business. So I've, I've learned the hard way. Um, and I've, I've, I've really had to retrain myself mm. to rest and to sleep and not feel guilty about no, resting and sleeping. Yeah. I think people feel like if you're not being busy, you're failing. It's like, no, like to operate at that level, surely something has to give and you've got to get enough sleep so that you can operate at that level. And yeah, totally. I just think rest is not lazy. And people, I think a lot of us were trained, a lot of our, our parents are very hardworking, you know, like yes. a lot of people are very hardworking and you just go and you do it. And it's, I, I know for myself and a lot of others I speak to that 
we've had to retrain ourselves to feel okay chilling out on like a Saturday afternoon not doing anything that it's not lazy it's actually really important well it, we've been given a weekend for a reason yeah. as well you know yeah. there's only a certain amount of hours in every day but um we do have to I was at this incredible Dr. Libby seminar recently, New Zealander. I love Dr. Libby. Dr. Libby. Yeah. She's one of the people I really idolise in, in the health and wellness um, industry. Mm. I think she's so, so science-backed, mm. but she um, just makes it so reliable to the everyday yes. person. Anyway, aside from my girl crush on Dr. Libby, <laughs> I was at one of her, um, like, immersive, like, seminars. I did one of her three-day courses, which I adored, and she talks about um, the 777, so like 24 hours in a day, you know, how do you get the most, um, sorry, 888, eight, eight, my bad, um, eight hours and how do you get the most out of it? I've reframed it as seven in my mind because I never use enough. So I like to keep those extra few hours yeah. to myself. That's my trick. But essentially she's like, we're given 24 hours in a day. Mm-hmm. It's meant to be for work, rest and play. Yeah. And it's like that 888. Eight, eight. Mm. Um, but we don't use it like no, that anymore. No, we just basically work. And we get so caught up in the doing and the working that it cuts into our play and our rest and, and then that, that sets the whole cycle off mm. and, and that starts us back on that on that mouse wheel um, and we feel like we're never catching up because we're constantly tapping into those those hours that are meant to be work. And, like, I run my own business and we work, you know, I think in today's society we're not doing that nine to five anymore. No. And life has changed. And yeah. It's very hard. But it's, like, how are we optimising and maximising those other hours in the day and the night that we do have to recharge, to reset, to still be passionate about things yeah. outside of our jobs and to stay um, happy and whole as a, as a, as a fully functioning human mm. um, so that we're not just putting all our eggs in one basket and focusing just on work or just on family or just on uh, whatever it is that we we get quite tied up in mm. and, and obsessed with and addicted to. Yeah. Uh, you know, wellness is so multifaceted, so how are we actioning all those different parts of our life? And, mm. and that, that's hard for all of us. Totally. I think it's definitely a trial and error and just working out what works for you individually and having those boundaries with yourself and with others as well. I've boundaries. Learned, I mean, boundaries is important with other people, but I've learned to have them myself. So I'm not sitting up at 11 o'clock at night after a full day being up since really early in the morning, you know, like 5 a.m. getting up, going to yoga or whatever, and then working all day and night. Like, you cannot do that. By doing that, you're leading by example. Yeah. You know, if you can do it for yourself, then you're kind of setting that precedent yeah. for others, and that helps. And it's only by to, doing it that you you learn it, because otherwise you wouldn't learn, you know. So you've got to kind of go through that time of being, yeah, I don't know. It's hard, especially so when, you're, when you're trying to achieve things on your own or, like you say, have a, a business – and creating something that doesn't exist or something new, you feel like you do you do have to hustle, you do have to put a lot into it. But Absolutely. at the same time, I think you also have to have boundaries and, and know when it's time to sleep, yeah. <laughs> go to bed and have enough sleep. Totally. Yeah. I went to Byron Bay a few weekends ago. Oh, I told no one I was there and I literally just went there and slept for two days. Oh, it's one of my favourite places. I love it there. You, can, you just land there and yeah. it's, it's relaxing. It helps you tap into, uh, well, it helps me tap into a more um, relaxed and wound yeah, version of myself. Very chill and very spiritual. Like, I love it there Definitely. So there's um, there's a, a lot of sacred land mm. there, yeah, and a lot of Indigenous land there that's, it definitely helps you be more grounded. Some questions I always ask when we wrap up our interviews is, what is something you would tell your younger self? I know that can be a tricky one, but knowing what you know now, what would you tell younger Steph, you know, I guess even pre going for the Olympics? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it is, it's a big mm. one. Um, I think, like, 
for me, it's not uh, uh, worrying about what everyone else thinks, and that seems like such an obvious answer, but I think I'm I'm so naturally, uh, it's just part of my nature mm. is to be concerned about other people. I'm, I mean, it's probably a reason I've ended up in the service industry for, for a reason. I, I love people and I love helping people, um, but I, I often can take that too far too. <laughs> Uh, and not look after myself in return. Um, so I think being, not being worried about what people think, mm. um, listening to your intuition, you know, I, I had to really learn that um, and back yourself, like always back yourself. We grow up very um, isolated to a point with certain belief systems and just to be so open to learning and be open to new beliefs and, and new um behaviors um and I think that's something that I, I didn't understand or know when I was younger and I've learned all of that later and I've enjoyed exploring all of mm. that so if I could give that to my younger self I think that's what I would do yeah and again that's great advice to others but another question I ask is what is advice you would give to other women listening who are wanting to do epic things like yourself or just you know live I guess without a better way of saying it but live their best life and what are some advice you would give to them? Um, I think, like, my biggest one is the power of no thank you. And I have had to learn this. <laughs> oh, my God, same. Also. Because we're, we're, taught, we're taught to be yes people. Yes. Yes, and be polite. And you don't say no, you say yes. And it's like you get to a point where you've said yes to things you don't really like doing or don't feel right to you and that just is like out of line with what feels right in your gut yes you know what I mean like I'm finding myself having to say no and not even feeling bad about it because I know it's not right to me power and people don't like it but you're like no thank you no thank you no thank you full stop no thank you not come back to me a million times and and no I've said no thank you like thank you very much but no thank you correct full stop full stop I'm done no justification around the how no or the explanation. why or explanation mm. it's just a no thank you grateful but no thank you and um it doesn't like <laughs> essentially it doesn't serve me that's what you're saying very much at all and a lot of people don't no. and it makes them uncomfortable possibly because they don't have the ability to say no thank you to certain things themselves um i really struggle with it and i i definitely still struggle with with it with certain people in my life um but i've become better at it and i've just found that it's 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 so self-serving but not in a bad way just to learn to do that and not take on all these extra things in your life and in your load you know when you're at high load you can't afford to be taking on things that um will take more away from Mm. you um so it's it's just about managing that load and where you're at at the time and learning boundaries as you were saying who you let in who your inner circle are, who are the people you can always surround yourself with that aren't going to set you off in times of need and despair and high load and um, and that power of no thank you so that you can continue to create those boundaries for yourself and, and like you said, live your best life. Like we're all trying to do it mm. and it looks different to all of us mm. and it's going to be uncomfortable for people when you do something that doesn't fit the status quo, seems really like, you know, when I left Australia to go and be a snowboarder, it was insane. People couldn't understand that. But it's it so epic. Like, and when I hear that part of your story, I'm like, that is incredible. Like, that is so boss. Like, aren't you so glad you did that? Even though, I mean, it might not have worked so out the way but, Like, that is incredible. Yeah. That is so cool. It taught me a lot early on, but I I had this unwavering belief in myself as an 18, 19-year-old that I could be 
that I that I just I loved sport and I loved competition. I loved winning. Mm-hmm. I was hungry and I stepped into that. And I, I had to refine it because my injury set me back and it challenged me. And I had to refine that again in business. And when you find it, it's so empowering mm. um, because it's you're not doing it for anyone else. Yeah. You're just standing in your own and you're doing something that you're very passionate about. And I always say, you know, stay in your own lane. That's one of my biggest things. And mm. it's from sport, but it helps me in business is fucking stop worrying about what everyone's doing around you. This is so relatable or um, transferable to any aspect mm. of your life is just stay in your own lane, stay focused on what you're doing um, and, and obviously care about what's happening around you and the people that are part of your life and supportive of your journey and you're supportive of theirs. But essentially you, you only get one life, you know, stay in the fast lane, enjoy yeah. it, live it. And when I do the work, just like as an athlete, when I did the work and when I was training hard and when my body was in its best condition and my headspace was in the right place, I would always have the best result mm. on my snowboard. Mm. And it's no different in business. When I'm doing the one percenters, when I'm working on myself physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, you know, taking good care of myself uh, and my business, I, I'm always more empowered to, to take on more and do more and keep pushing. Um, but when you run down and your tank's a bit empty, it's a lot harder to, mm. to stand in that. Thank you so much for your time, Steve, and everything you're doing, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Self Love Club podcast. Please subscribe for weekly episodes and catch up on eps you may have missed. Reviews and sharing the Self Love Club with your friends and on your Instagram stories helps heaps in spreading the self love message. You can keep up with the Self Love Club at Self Love Club Podcast and at Belle Crawford on Instagram. Plus, find resources and blog posts on my website, bellcrawford.com. We've got heaps of boss babes coming up to empower you through the rest of the year with weekly episodes available each Monday. Catch you soon, babes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.